More than two years after a sweeping cybersecurity executive order, the White House is proposing new cyber requirements for IT contractors. The rules would set tight deadlines for reporting cyber incidents to the government and require IT contractors to maintain a software bill of materials. For some of the details, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And I imagine that when contractors refer to this SBOM requirement, they're not using the word software. But nevertheless, these rules have been proposed, and so give us some of the details. Sure. There were two rules published in the Federal Register this week. One rule would mandate some incident reporting and information sharing from information technology and operational technology contractors. And then the other rule would aim to standardize cybersecurity requirements for unclassified information systems across government. And as you mentioned, this stems from President Joe Biden's uh, May 2021 cybersecurity executive order that included a major goal to really increase the cybersecurity information that these contractors uh, share with agencies, uh, because obviously a lot of these contractors operate or uh, you know provide systems that critical agency data resides upon. I caught up with Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, to talk a little bit about these new rules. I think the important thing to remember is we put these federal acquisition rules together in the heels of the SolarWinds event and Colonial Pipeline. And this was really us as government saying, here's the things that based on our experience responding to serious incidents that have really been missing for us to be able to do our jobs the way that we need to. All right. And what did he say are the specific requirements for reporting cyber incidents? IT contractors under these rules would have to report cyber incidents to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within eight hours of discovering them and then provide updates every 72 hours thereafter. And the rule recognizes that these initial eight-hour reports might not contain complete information because it takes a long time to really break down what might have happened in a cyber attack or cyber incident. Basically, the government just wants these IT contractors to give them a heads up that something's going on. Here's to Russia again. That's sort of initial notification that something's going on. And that allows us to put pieces together and put the threat picture together at the speed that we need to to address our adversaries. I mean, again, we were all talking about generative AI and the increase in the speed of incidents. We have to have the ability here to get information fast or at least initial notification. All right. So besides reporting, let's say there is an incident on a contractor's network and there's CUI information on there or whatever. What happens after just a report? Yeah, this is where this rule gets a little interesting. It proposes a requirement that would allow CISA, the FBI, and the contracting agency to have, quote, full access to applicable contractor information and information systems and to contractor personnel in response to a security incident that is reported by the contractor. And so that's a a pretty significant step that the government would be taking. Uh, Jerusha pointed that out as well. He said that they actually want feedback, expect feedback on that specific point of this proposed rule. So that's one aspect of this to watch as well, this access requirement. Sounds like they're going to have a big screen sharing session with the contractor's chief information security officer or something. Let's get to the topic of the software bills of material. I mean, the government has been requiring agencies to have SBOMs for the software that they own, and that requires the contractor's cooperation here. They've got to provide it when you buy the software. What about 
what do the rules add to that regime? So essentially, it proposes a, re- a new requirement for these I- IT contractors to develop and maintain a software bill of materials for any software that is used in the performance of a contract, regardless of whether there is a security incident. Uh, obviously, these SBOMs are often referred to as software ingredients lists that provide an inventory on the libraries and components and metadata that's associated with a software application. And officials have said these are really critical for understanding whether there might be a vulnerability within their system. So this proposed rule, in addition to the requirement, seeks some feedback on just the methods for collecting SBOMs from contractors, uh, the challenges with developing an SBOM, and how often an SBOM should be updated to account for changes in any software. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties here is that an SBOM is not just a static thing, like a notebook, you know, a three-ring binder with a bunch of text in it. Every time there's a patch, every time there's an update, every time there's a new version, there should be a new software bill of materials. And so it's a living document. I think of the SBOM as more of a process than a thing. Nobody's really developed, I think, the methodology that's best practice for handling SBOMs. Other cyber requirements the government is proposing here. Yeah, actually, there are going to be some future proposals coming out. Uh, DeRussia said there's going to be one regarding the broader application of SBOM requirements across government, not just necessarily these information and communications technology contractors, as well as there's going to be some reforms to the Federal Risk Authorization and Management Program, FedRAMP, uh, that's used to authorize cloud services on government. So there's some more rules coming down the pike. The comments on these proposed regulations that we've been talking about today are due by December 4th. Uh, So there's a lot going on here when it comes to IT contracting and cybersecurity requirements here in the next couple of months. Jerusha said that he hopes to get a lot of feedback on these proposals. We know that we're going to get it largely right, but not all the way right. And we want it to be all the way right. And we're, we're listening to that feedback and implementing it. We're also not going to sit still. We're going to do stuff that's uncomfortable, and that's going to continue to happen because it's the only way to make progress. And it's the only way to get more secure. And we will find our way along that path to the optimal path. Commenting, then, is now open on these rules officially. And as you mentioned, contractors or anybody can have until December 4th to make comments. That's right, December 4th. And and then that doesn't mean that these rules are effective afterward. They're proposed rules, meaning that there will be uh, some ingestion from government when all these comments come in. And and then they'll have to go out and finalize these rules somehow based on that. And since you have attended the rollout of these rules, any industry feedback you've been able to garner yet, Justin? Well, I think one aspect of this that might be positive for contractors that that I'm hearing so far is standardizing contractor cybersecurity requirements across the board. That's one aspect of these rules. Uh, That's one goal of these rules, uh, because, you know, a lot of agencies have their own processes for different cyber requirements. And these rules don't necessarily purport to take all of those away but at least to provide some standard contract clauses that no matter whether you're going to commerce or state or wherever, you could expect to see these show up. And these are for any contractor doing business with the government or just IT contractors or cybersecurity vendors? The idea is that if they're connected to the government in some way or hold government data, then they would have to be subject to these rules? These pertain to information system contractors, contractors that furnish information systems to the government. So that's a narrower slice of the federal technology contracting community. But 
it does require to a whole heck of a lot of contractors who provide some pretty critical IT systems to the government. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. 
We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. 
And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has 
been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.